Welcome to Off Screen Let's Get Cinematic. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Bex Perfect, and this is your seven day guide to everything movies. Boom. Indeed. And of course, one more week. Two more weeks of being on the couch, is it now? I can never keep track anymore, Bex. How long are we supposed to be still on the couch now? I have no idea. I know that cinemas have opened, or they're planning on opening in a couple of weeks. There's a lot of mixed sentiments about what's going to happen, whether or not people are actually going to want to go back and, you know, experience the cinematic feel. I think there's a lot of stuff that needs to be put in place before people feel safe enough to do it. Oh, actually, it's funny you say that because in the moments before we hit record on this, the guidelines came out. I believe the Screen Daily published the the actual Ah. government-approved guidelines for cinemas, which uh, include no enforcement of masks. They're not going to be enforced one way or the other because there's no legal requirement for them, apparently. And uh, capacity, oh, up to 60%. So, I I don't know. Do you think Disney would knowingly release a film completely in the knowledge that it would only earn at most 60%? of what it would earn otherwise, or Warner Brothers, who need to earn, last time I checked, around $600 million for Tenet, because it seems like a gamble, if you ask me. Yeah, and also, I mean, that's optimistic at 60%. I mean, there's also news mm. out, out there that Cineworld staff are petitioning that everyone should be wearing masks if they want to come in. To be honest, I'm not sure I'd want to be in a cinema with, you know, the ventilation systems, all that kind of stuff, not wearing a mask. I think it's too much of a risk, if I'm honest. I'm happy on the couch. (laughs) Well, that and I've seen the movie Outbreak, so I've seen literally the worst case scenario of what could happen if you unleash a virus in a cinematic multiplex. (laughs) Right. Well, let's keep everyone on the couch for now. And shall we crack on with what's on digital this week for you? Indeed. So our first our first offering this week, and uh, we're going to start on something of a, 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 a somber but intelligent note. We're going to talk about On the Record, which is a new documentary from uh, director Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. Now, Kirby Dick, I know, you, but you'll know for the, you remember The Invisible War a few years ago? There was that documentary. Yeah. Also, The Hunting Ground. I know his work through, and I think Amy Ziering was the producer on a lot of his previous documentaries. She's now directing as well. And given the subject matter, that makes complete sense as well, that this would be her time to actually step behind the directorial side as well. Um, I know Kirby Dick from This Film Is Not Yet Rated, a tremendous documentary about uh, the MPAA and how American uh, rating systems are applied to films and the terrible system, the corrupt system that has uh, emerged around that in recent decades. This is about Me Too and the record industry, specifically Drew Dixon, who came forward in 2017 to out Russell Simmons as something of a monster. She was one of the number of women who alleged assaults going back in, in Drew Dixon's case as far back as 1995 when she was 24 years old. Uh, she was an up-and-comer on the scene. She, Do you remember the song I'll Be There For You by Method Man and Mary J. Blige? You remember that oh, one? Yeah. Yes, I do. She's the brains behind that song. She then disappeared from the music scene after, you know, in, in somewhat mysterious circumstances that no one really twigged because as we're told at one point, women just disappeared from the music scene all the time back then. We didn't really think any thing of it. Turns out there was a reason for that. She reappeared back on the scene, got involved doing music for Lauren Hill, for Whitney Houston, and then L.A. Reid became her new boss and she had a whole new set of problems. So I, let's, let's just take a, 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 sound, a, a sound sampling of just roughly how tragic this starts to unfold. That's one of the beautiful things about the music industry. There was a lot of mobility for women, but at the same time, there was tremendous amount of sexual harassment. You didn't get a lot of sympathy for that. That was considered the price of admission. I didn't tell that many people about what happened with Russell. He just grabbed me. He just grabbed me. And I'm saying no. I was reduced to nothing in that moment. 
nothing about anything that makes me who I am mattered. So it's a really, really harrowing documentary, as you would imagine any documentary about Me Too is, but in this case as well, it comes with added cultural baggage that, to be quite frank, you won't really have, con well, I mean, I know I won't have really considered, you being a woman, you may have considered this, because I did not think for one second that there is an entirely different stigma in the African-American community for allegations of sexual assault. And as we're told at one point, it comes down to, in some cases, an issue of race loyalty versus justice. That's the term used because of the historic use of sexual assault allegations against African-American men in the 18th, 19th centuries as sort of justifications for, for white hatred, for, you know, for, for lynchings and things like that. And, it's, and, and this burden that it heaps on that they are damaging the community. And Russell Simmons being the, the godfather of hip-hop brings with him this, this innate sort of devotion by so many people and how to even attempt to besmirch that name ostracizes you, whether you like it or not, almost instantly. It's a fascinating documentary. It's really well put together. It's really well staged. As far as these documentaries go, this is not an Asif Kapadia, which is that, always a comparison point, but this is something as slick as Kirby Dick's This Film Is Not Yet Rated, although punchier, more powerful. This has all the gloss of something that you'd expect Apple TV Plus to be unveiled. Incidentally, this is, as far as I can tell, the first project from Warner Max, which is their new distribution arm of the HBO Max platform that's launched in, in recent weeks. Wow, okay. Well, that's good, because I was going to ask. I was like, you, you're telling stuff that I think would be so compelling as a documentary but if you're then going to follow it up with a that actually this falls a little flat I was going to be really really disappointed so it definitely sounds like a good watch quite a difficult one but something oh, that yes. I think in terms of an education I think it's definitely an important watch so this is available today so kick off your weekend with some some heavy learning shall we say right so moving swiftly on we've got The Booksellers which is available from Monday tell us about that one okay so The Booksellers a new documentary from uh, D.W. Young and it is literally what it says on the tin uh, this is a documentary about booksellers narrated by Parker Posey for some reason and uh, I, I, I know I can't figure that one out uh, features of, of, amongst other people Fran Leibowitz who you'll hear in our clip in a moment uh, and this explores the New York rare book scene the independent bookstore sort of circuit and do you remember the movie uh, Can You Have Forgive Me and the shops that you saw in yeah. that movie yeah, 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 basically yeah. that sort that sort of a culture. I mean, a lot of it takes place in sort of the sort of fifties through the nineties when the when these stores were still sort of thriving and how these stores were sort of lost their edge in in the wake of the the rise of, of places like Borders and Waterstones and places like that. One of the things I remember about those guys, they were all guys. They were like all little dusty Jewish men who were very irritated if you wanted to buy a book because they were not really in business. They were there so they could read all day. And if it was, you know, warm, they would be sitting outside like on a box. They were covered in dust. Their hands were yellow from nicotine. They always had glasses, of course, because they've been reading in the dark since they were, you know, six years old. And if you would like go up to them and ask very politely, how much is this book? Half the time they wouldn't even look up. I always imagined I would be like that if I owned a bookstore. And you could just crawl around in there and you would find stuff. They didn't know what they had. If you could get his attention, he'd make up a price. But the price would be like 40 cents. So I like that. So it's got a certain charming lilt to it, as you can imagine. You can hear from Fran Lebowitz in that clip. But the issue with it really becomes, aside from a few minor chuckles, there's not an awful lot going for it. It's not a very engaging or arresting documentary. It doesn't really introduce you to a culture that you'll find inherently fascinating. This is a very dry documentary. It's like a few chuckles, but really not an awful lot beyond that, I would say. But do you know what? From I think 
the idea of looking at these kind of quirky independent bookshops I think when I was a a teen and kind of working out who I wanted to be in the world I'd hang out in those kind of little bookshops and be like (laughs) yeah maybe I'll be one of these kind of people or maybe I'll just really get into film and I'm really glad I got into film Uh, (laughs) but I can see that there will definitely be an audience albeit nostalgic Mm. or actually the audience that still kind of is interested in this and actually Maybe the tone is just right for that kind of audience. Maybe it doesn't need to be a wham-bam documentary. It just needs to be something that reminds people of a certain type of bookshop or experience that they actually love. So maybe it's it's going to be a big thumbs up for people who enjoy that sort of thing. But actually for the general population, think, maybe it's a little bit more down. Yeah, I totally think if you do if you do enjoy it, if you do enjoy the, the sort of bookshop scene anyway, then obviously it's going to be for you. It's like anything, isn't it? It's like there are Cats fans who enjoy the movie Cats. I mean, otherwise known as mental patients. But, you know, other than that, I mean, I've seen documentaries about the, the about the exotic wine scene. I know nothing about the exotic wine scene, but I really love that movie Sour Grapes. Uh, yeah. You know, that documentary. So, you know, yeah. it is possible for a, you know, a documentary about something you know nothing about to arrest you, engage you, and interest you. But at the same time, if you are already interested in that field, then naturally, yeah. obviously, you're going to gravitate so, towards it. So that's the booksellers. That's available on Monday, the 29th of June. If you are into your books, it sounds like one for you. If you're not, it's a bit of a shame, maybe. But we'll see. <laughs> Welcome back to off screen now we're moving straight on to keeping you onto the couch uh not moving very far at all and don't worry because that's because we've got some great movies on tv for you we're going to give you your seven day guide to our top picks of the week and we're kicking off on saturday how romantic with a proposal on five star 7 55 p.m I really like this film. That's the thing. I mean, we talk about The Proposal, I think, about once every three or four months now because it is a film that does get perpetually shown on TV quite often. I mean, admittedly, there is all on that night, so we, we kind of got our hands tied on this one. But at least we got our hands tied with a movie that's half decent. So, you know, we can say that. The Proposal, which uh, stars uh, Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock, I think this is arguably the first big mainstream role for, for Ryan Reynolds. He had been in other things, you know, Blade Trinity and Wait just friends and things like that but I think it's the proposal that, that put him before the widest audience for the first time uh, Sandra Bullock already established as a rom-com queen at this point she is the hard-ass boss he is the put-upon what is he sort of like an executive he's her assistant. assistant yeah he's her assistant hmm. isn't he and and they kind of have to end up pretending that they're in a that they're a fiance, their fiancés essentially don't they and uh, it's one of those films which I think plays out really well because both of them are great comedic actors as you say I know it was kind of an intro for Ryan Reynolds to a wider audience but actually he's a really good actor so he captivates you anyway and it's not something that you're thinking is too fresh and new it feels very established so that kind of dynamic works really well and makes it incredibly incredibly funny and something that stands the test of time what are your parents dead oh no his are his are very much alive very Very much much. they're uh well we were going to tell them this weekend Gammy's 90th birthday the whole family's coming together and we thought it'd be a nice surprise and where is this surprise going to take place? At uh, Andrew's parents' house. Where, where, where is that located again? Um, pff, why am I doing all the talking? Jump in. <laughs> Sitka. Sitka. Alaska. Alaska. You're going to go to Alaska this weekend? Yeah. Yes, yes. We are going to Alaska. Alaska. That's where, uh, that's where my little, that's where my Andrew's from. 
So that's Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds there being, almost said Ryan Gosling, Ryan Reynolds being interrogated by, did you say it's their green card, their immigration officer, I think he is. And, uh, you know, cue wacky hijinks during which they have to uh, retreat to his his family, as, as they actually refers to them, the Alaskan Kennedys, I think he's referred to. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing as well about this, we talked about the book club last week in which Craig T. Nelson and Mary Steenburgen are a married couple. They're also a married couple in this, playing Ryan Reynolds' as parents. So just been a weird sort of repeat casting there. I do love me a bit of Craig T. Nelson. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to Sunday. Then we're keeping it romantic. We've gone from the proposal now to a wedding. So let's talk about Table 19. Have you seen this one, Max? Well, I haven't, but I know... Well, I'm a big Anna Kendrick fan, and I'm surprised that I haven't seen this, actually, because I think she's so incredibly watchable. And I think, you know, especially in these kind of sort of comedic, rom-com-y kind of roles. So I'd be intrigued to kind of watch this. I'm going to put this on my list for, for Sunday. Yeah, definitely. So this stars Anna Kendrick as the jilted ex of the best man at a wedding of her former best friend. So the idea was she was going out with her... Uh, she, she was going out with this guy played by Wyatt Russell. Uh, her best friend was his sister. She's getting married. They've broken up in the meanwhile. She goes along anyway. She gets put at the loser table. Table 19, which features such uh, prominent uh, you know, performers as Tony Revolori, Stephen Merchant... Uh, is it uh, Craig, Ar- Craig Armstrong? Craig Robinson. Craig Robinson from uh, The Office and Hot Tub Time Machine and Lisa Kudrow and uh, well it, it's just it's the relationships that form between these unlikely uh, compatriots who are sort of just outcasts at this wedding Nikki can calm down what is the, what is the deal with Nikki really wow what's the deal with Nikki that's funny why would you care about Nikki if you're just here for my sister you're right yeah you're right it's none of my business if you cheated on me with her what why should it even bother me come on I didn't cheat on you with her. It started after we broke up and you dropped out as maid of honor. How does a guy who, after two years, you break up with me over text? Good luck with your future endeavors? Were you firing me? What the? It sounds like if you've ever been on that table at a wedding, this is absolutely perfect viewing for you because- Who on earth has put you on that table during a wedding? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, but I, I kind of do it just for a bit of fun, to be honest. I always request it. It's the most interesting. And that those weddings, uh, do you know what? At, at my wedding, I remember my friends saying to me, you put us on that table. And actually, from my point of view, I was like, no, I thought you were all like a bunch of creatives that would all like really enjoy getting together on a table. And they were like, yeah, nice try. <laughs> so I kind of understand it. And I think that's why... I think there's going to be a lot of in-jokes that a lot of people will get from this movie, yeah. which um, I'm hoping is why it's kind of, you know, one of your top picks here for Sunday. It's far from the slushy rom-com that you would expect it to be. It has got actually sharper teeth than you would you would expect. And it's actually quite admirable in how much it leans towards sort of a more sensitive dramedy than the comedy. And it actually, it's perfect. It's a perfect vehicle for Anna Kendrick, very much. I've seen it a few times now. Um, big fan, no doubt we'll watch it again. Absolutely, check that out. We'll we'll recap all the times at the end of the, at the end of this. But uh, so that's on film for seven ten on Sunday night, which leads us to Monday. And I'm so glad that after ten years as a critic, I finally, finally get to talk about two brilliant films that from for my younger years this week. This is the first of not brilliant, but films I love. And I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you ever seen 
FX, Murder by Illusion Vex. No, I haven't, but I do know that it is a 1986, a stellar year, action thriller. (laughs) (laughs) So this was, remember, once upon a time, Brian Brown had a film career. Australian comedian Brian Brown had a film career. Yeah, and you know what? You look through the cast list of this and you don't actually recognise a huge, this is kind of like, you need if you know you know kind of casting in this it's um it's not the ultimate it's not something you're going to see bruce willis pop up in this as an example well it does feature and he was i think he was largely known for his role in rambo first blood or just first blood back then but uh, the late brian dennehy who he lost in in recent months the idea here is that uh, brian brown plays special effects man rolly tyler and yes he keeps the australian accent he is the greatest special effects man who has ever lived he can fake anything and he's hired by the FBI to stage the assassination of a mob informant played by weirdly I think he's played by the voice of Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast the animated version only to then find himself on the run for actually assassinating the mob informant Um, and you know the people who have hired him supposedly being the people who have set him up for this crime in order to evade them he has to utilize his bag of special effects tricks which include prosthetic effects, uh, pyrotechnic explosions, vehicle stunts, every special effect you can think of whilst he teams up with uh, Brian Dennehy's uh, copper I think his name's Leo, and uh, they, it somehow involves like a lot of uh, some sort of uh, stolen gold from way back when. They did make a sequel to this in 1991 as well. I think it's FX Murder by Illusion and then FX to The Deadly Art of Illusion. They were both MGM films. They were both quite widely available on DVD. Both really fun movies, be it flimsy, be it, you know, typical 90-minute, 1986 cheesy romps, but good times, good, good fun to be had, and, you know, just fun for the sort of gag the gimmick of the special effects thing. I think it's it's rubbish title, brilliant film, is how you want to describe this. <laughs> it was a short it was a short-lived US cable TV series spin-off as well about the further adventures of Rolly Tyler. I never got to see. I may have to look that up nowadays. I mean, now that we've got uh, some time for you know left for another few weeks, I might look up that old series. That's FX Murder by Illusion. That's on the Paramount Channel, Monday night, 9 p.m. Do watch it. Do check out the sequel in which he has like a motion capture suit that controls an animatronic clown. That's, uh, that's very fun. But you got the proposal, Saturday night, five stars, 7.55 p.m., table 19, Sunday night, film four, 7.10 p.m., and of course, FX, Murder by Illusion, at nine o'clock on Paramount on Monday night. I think that's a good lineup. What do you think? I think, I think that sees your weekend through pretty strong. And we're back on that couch with you for a second round of movies on Freeview for the week. On to Tuesday then, Miss Perfect. Shall we take it to the ring? Yes, let's do that. Sometimes when you have a movie that's got such a following, an iconic kind of feel about it, and then it gets kind of remade or goes in a new direction for a new audience, you're very dubious about it. In this case, it was a gamble that massively paid off because we're talking today about Creed, which is on Five Star at 9 p.m. I know people were very excited about this, but people were probably very nervous about this as well. And Michael B. Jordan absolutely slays it as Adonis Creed in this movie. What are you, like a cousin? He's my father. No, he is. I don't believe you. Call Marianne. Marianne, his wife. The house number still works? That's right. You haven't talked to her since the funeral. She said you gave a nice speech, though. 
I know exactly what you mean about it's, it's always dubious when they try to take a franchise in a new direction. But Creed, uh, when it was coming out, reminded me a lot of when Rise of the Planets of the Apes was on the way. Mm. We were just looking at that thinking, this just sounds like a terrible idea. Why would you do this to the franchise? And in both cases, you know, it's, it, you know we could happily say, yeah, that, that turned out to be the best possible version of that. Well done. But how many times does that actually happen? It's very few, isn't it? So it's more of a, it's more relief and like, oh goodness, they did a good job. Thank goodness, sir. I think a lot of the success of Creed comes down to, well, I mean, a couple of factors. Obviously, there is the great central performance of Michael B. Jordan. There's Ryan Coogler bringing real heart to that script, to that direction. Yeah. And Coogler taking on the writing of that was, was quite interesting because it had always been Stallone's baby, obviously, the Rocky series. He had been involved at the scripting stage with so many entries in that series and so many of the more iconic sequels as well, such as Rocky IV, which, of course, then gets its own sequel as the sequel to Creed. So Creed II becomes sort of Rocky IV-B as well and that, that's a strange generational sequel that I actually think in, in many ways might be the best of the Rocky sequels I think it's a great movie with a, a terrific supporting turn from not only Sylvester Stallone who rightfully got himself an Oscar nomination for this but also Tessa Thompson as yeah. well who I think makes a, a tremendous impression as not so much just the love interest but a female lead pr even more prominent than Rocky's Adrian I would say, within this series. Yeah, I, I, but I, I think let's not compare it. It's kind of more, let's look at it for, it, it opens it up to this new generation and she is the understanding of like the Adrian mm. character for our more modern generation. And I think that's a really clever thing that Ryan Coogler did writing this in and, you know, and directing this in a way that kind of makes us sort of empathetic with her character, but also she feels quite empowering as well. It's brilliant and it's so watchable and it gets your adrenaline going. And it's, if you've got nothing going on on Tuesday, I mean, who has a lot going on on a Tuesday? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's on five star at 9 p.m. And it's so worth your time. So if you've never seen this before, sit down, enjoy that evening because this is going to be your perfect watch. I mean, you say that. What do people have going on? People are always telling me they'll see me next Tuesday, but I, I never see anyone. It's a strange <laughs> thing. Anyway, over to Wednesday, a movie that I uh, I have a soft spot for. This is one I've never gotten to talk about before. This is a 1993 comedy written by and starring Mike Myers. It is called So I Married an Axe Murderer, and there's so many interesting sort of niche things about this. He made this movie as a sort of a tribute to his father, but he, his father died, I think, during the making of it. It messed him up a little bit. This is why Mike Myers disappeared from the scene for a few years until the first Austin Powers movie, which he then made as a tribute to the kind of films that his father loved. His father is actually depicted within this film, would you believe, as a Scottish character, played by Mike Myers under aesthetic effects. I'll play you a clip in a minute just showing off exactly what he was like but the premise is Mike Myers is a beat poet, a stand-up comic slash beat poet in 1993's San Francisco who falls for a butcher played by Nancy Travis and begins to suspect that she is the Black Widow, a woman who marries and then murders men on their wedding nights. And you know what? The film's about as predictable as you'd imagine, but it does have such delightful moments as this. Well, it's a well-known fact, Sonny Jim, that there's a secret society of the five wealthiest people in the world known as the Pentaverite, mm. who run everything in the world, including the newspapers, and meet tri-annually at a secret country mansion in Colorado known as the Meadows. So who's in this Pentaverite? The Queen. 
the Vatican, the Gettys, the Rothschilds, and Colonel Sanders before he went tetsa. Oh, I hated the Colonel with his wee beady eyes and that smug look on his face. Oh, you're gonna buy my chicken. Oh! Dad, how can you hate the Colonel? Because he puts an addictive chemical in his chicken that makes you crave it fortnightly, smart arse! Interesting. Cuckoo. This is a movie that I'm putting into my back catalogue of I was too young to watch this, and I watched it. I don't think I have seen it since, but I think I kind of watched this around 1995, um, so when it was out on VHS. Um, and I remember rushing to my local video shop and convincing my dad to hire it for me because I was like, this looks brilliant. I've heard a lot about Mike Myers, and I definitely think I'm old enough to watch this. <laughs> And I always remember it with such fond memories, but I couldn't tell you what goes on in it for the life of me. But I'm so excited that it's on TV again. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's never on TV. It's on Sony movies. Five past five in the... Because I think it's a 12, so it's on at five past five in the afternoon on Wednesday. Absolutely worth checking out. I mean, it's a naff movie, but there's so many great little beats in it, like the character of his dad. And the, the, I mean, if you could actually see that clip that we played, if you could visually see it, you'd see that Anthony LaPaglia, who plays... Mike Myers' best friend and a homicide detective who's bored with the, the sort of routine of, of police work. and That's a great gag he shares with Alan Arkin as well. He actually struggles to contain himself through that scene. And they just make no attempt to hide it, but it works so perfectly because you would be dying of laughter during that moment. Uh, in that film, but like I say, chock full of fun little moments. I was, a, I was a big Mike Myers fan because of the Wayne's World series. So Mad and Axe Murder, I think, was the first thing outside of Wayne's World and Wayne's World 2 that he did for you know, that I saw. Uh, so I couldn't wait to see it. And then he turned up again in uh, in Austin Powers, I think, four yeah. years later as well. So there was that to look forward to. And and do you know what? Also, I, I remember in terms of this kind of like time frame of watching movies, this falls into, I loved watching this and I loved watching Kim Basinger in My Stepmom's an Alien, if you've ever seen that. <laughs> Similar um, thing, isn't it? Yeah. Similar thing, yeah. It kind of feels on par. So I might do a double a double whammy and watch both of them. Um, this sounds really exciting. <laughs> Speaking of exciting, then, we'll keep that going for Thursday for you as well. We've, we've talked about this before. We both love this. This is a great thriller from 94. I believe this got an Oscar nomination for Tommy Lee Jones. It is Andrew Davis's 1994 adaptation of the 60s TV series The Fugitive, which is showing on ITV4 at 9pm, starring Harrison Ford as Dr. Richard Kimball, the surgeon who is framed for the murder of his wife by a one-armed man. Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. Who doesn't love that Tommy Lee Jones speech? Exactly. And again, this falls into that category of going, so it was made before, there was an audience for it when it was that TV show of The Fugitive. What's it going to be like? Well, do you know what? The 90s can always make things better. And that's exactly (laughs) what this is a brilliant movie whether or not you've seen the series before it you're gonna if you have you're gonna love the movie and if you hadn't if you were introduced to this movie as a younger person or a child which you probably shouldn't have been this again is one of those movies you kind of go 
oh my goodness, this is up there as one of the best things that I've ever, ever seen in my childhood. Well, that's the thing. It's obviously, I was I was a child. I was 11, I think, when this came out. And I was a huge fan of The Fugitive. And then I think three or four years later, we got the sequel, U.S. Marshals, out of it, which is same U.S. Marshals team, different Fugitive. And I think that's pretty good as well. I mean, that's a sequel so good, they added Robert Downey Jr. just for giggles. That's how good that movie was. Check it out. If you've never seen The Fugitive, I don't know what you've been doing all your life, but you've got to check this out. But on to Friday, and I think you and I, I'm not sure if we watched this together at a press show three years ago. No. And it's the it's the 2017 drama Borg versus McEnroe, starring Shia LaBeouf. This is showing on BBC Two on Friday night at 11.20pm. Did you, did you have the pleasure of this one? I'm trying to rack my brains to think whether or not I did. When you said Shia LaBeouf, it actually didn't ring true that I've seen this, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and jog my memory because I do think that if it's 2017, I will have seen it. I but... believe you will have. It was, it was quite a big release that week, but of course the big shtick of it, this is when Shia LaBeouf was going through his weird I'll do performance art every week you know and, and yeah. create some kind of viral meme kind of you know that, that that reign of terror he was inflicting upon us all but he was starting to emerge as a pretty great dramatic actor with some offbeat choices as well this was one let's have a, a quick sample of, of his his John McEnroe uh, the only thing standing between Borg and that record is you mm -hmm. well, here's what the it's saying over in London where uh, you're hardly making any friends. <laughs> now, John, I'm, I, I gotta ask you, what is it that you've done to the Brits? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's just a different place, you know? It's a different culture and they have warm beer and it's just a different thing. Well, have you, uh, have you got a plan to uh, get them to stop booing? I mean, I plan to go in there and play my game. And if I beat Borg in the final, it's very hard to boo me if I'm number one, so... <laughs> So I think this is a really good drama. It's, 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 they had, we had this, and then we had, we had Battle of the Sexes about yes. a year afterwards as well with Steve Carell, uh, Steve Carell, Steve uh, Carell and uh, Emma and Stone. Emma Stone. Yeah. Good, good couple of years for uh, true story tennis dramas, I think. And you know what? Tennis is my sport of lockdown. So if anything, I'll definitely be watching this. Um, if I can as well, Max, I'd be into tennis, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm a massive fan of Shia LaBeouf when he's not bonkers. So he's a really, really good actor, really worth watching just to see him kind of at his best in a way, I suppose. I think I have seen it. I've just looked back at a few photos. The only thing I'd say about it is that it probably didn't stick in my mind. So there must be something mm. slightly missing for it. But it's picked up a load of awards. It's obviously got that kind of look and feel. It's got Stellan Skarsgård in it as well. You know, a great actor. So if you're after something that, and you know about the Borg versus McEnroe rivalry, you definitely yeah. want to kind of watch this dramatised on the small screen for you as well. So that's Friday, BBC Two, 11.20pm. Should we go through, uh, just give everyone a quick rundown of the times and where they can catch everything of course i mean uh, so we can start on starting on saturday with a proposal that's on five star at 755 uh sunday table 19 that's film four uh, 10 past seven in the evening and on monday fx murder by illusion is on paramount at 9 p.m on monday night over to you miss perfect and then we've got tuesday we've got that that brilliant film creed five star 9 p.m make sure you catch that so i married an axe murderer both van and myself will be reliving our 1993 years <laughs> by watching that on sony movies at 505 p.m bit early for that i think thursday is the fugitive itv4 9 p.m and then friday finish off your week with borg versus McEnroe, bbc2 11 20 p.m what a week for movies on tv Okay, so thanks for sticking with us here on Offscreen. We've got more 
great movies for you guys to catch this time on your DVDs, your shiny discs, your Blu-rays and also on streaming. So if you're after something that once was in the cinemas and you're wanting to catch it now in the comfort of your own home, don't worry, we've got it sorted. And that is all available from Monday, June 29th. So we're kicking this off with a really, really interesting movie uh, called Invisible Man, which I know both Van and myself are a very big fans of because it's Elizabeth Moss and, you know, doing a brilliant, brilliant, dramatic retelling of essentially kind of the Universal's old back catalogue of of monsters, essentially, isn't it? Well, this is what became of the the failed Dark Universe effort of several years ago, which was basically an attempt to chase the tale of Marvel using characters they didn't have to pay, to pay for the rights for because they just had those classic the classic monsters sort of in the archive but the, what is really clever about this is this is Lee Wanell who most recently gave us Upgrade but of course cut his teeth on things like the Saw movies and Insidious um, what he's done here is to take the H.G. Wells classic you know the classic original sci-fi horror novel and infuse it with, with a more contemporary psycho thriller along the lines of sleeping with the enemy and then entrusting that into the hands of arguably one of the best young actresses on the scene currently Elizabeth Moss who you know has garnered this huge fan base, especially in recent years through Handmaid's Tale, but to a lesser extent through through Mad Men and be, even before that in things like The West Wing. Really creepy, really dark film. Let's have a go at this. He has figured out a way to be invisible. You know exactly what I'm talking about. He's not dead. I just can't see him. Okay. No, I agree with you. Adrian was brilliant. But it wasn't because of anything he invented. It was how he got in people's heads. You think about it. He came up with the perfect way to torture you, even in death. Only thing more brilliant than inventing something that makes you invisible is not inventing it, but making you think he did. He's not dead, Tom. So you can, hear, you can hear the tension sort of dripping off of this, which is less than can really be said for uh, our next effort, which is also a Blumhouse film. Funnily enough, so like Invisible Man, this is also Blumhouse. Legally speaking, we have to refer to this as Blumhouse's Fantasy Island, which is something I noticed on the BBFC ratings card at the beginning of it, because they didn't screen this for critics, interestingly enough. I can't quite understand why, because we've certainly been shown a lot worse than this, such as the film we're going to talk about next. Um, This is a a perfectly serviceable, sort of 90 to 100 minute kind of psycho slasher fantasy thing on an island all star cast that includes you know Maggie Q and uh, Jimmy Yang and, and uh, what's his name the douche from Veronica Mars uh, actors like that I don't want to give too much away from it Michael Peña is arguably the big star sort of factor in this and he's clearly enjoying himself you'll have a decent enough time with Fantasy Island but I don't think it's one that you'll want to shout home about Having said that, if you're a completist, you like the Blumhouse set, you're of course going to pick this up on DVD. Now, the next offering that we've got is Like a Boss, which stars Tiffany Haddish, uh, Salma Hayek, and also Rose Byrne. Now, Van is not a fan of this. I get that. I didn't mind this as much as he hated it. It's basically a film about two best friends who have a beauty business. They then have the 
opportunity to expand their business through Salma Hayek's bigger beauty conglomerate and uh, behemoth of a business that she's got, but there's actually more underhand things afoot. Now, there are some fun moments in this movie. It's not your bridesmaids. It's not kind of the film that you expect to see that will get girls wanting to go and rush to the cinema to watch it, but there is definitely an audience for this. It's a throwaway movie. It's easy to kind of catch. It's one of those things that I think you'll have maybe three or four laughs that might kind of resonate with you, but the rest of it is relatively flat. I'm like, I'm talking over this one because I don't want Van to absolutely kill it for you. <laughs> just gonna say, all I'm going to say is, do you know when a, when a comedy is only 83 minutes long, that tells you something. Let's move on, shall we? It's okay. I'm just going to give it a big O and a K. Uh, we're going to move on to a film that came out at the cinemas, not too short of uh, lockdown actually happening. So we are kind of at that end of the cinematic offerings at the moment. And it is greed. It is Steve Coogan's uh, retake of, or his take on what I think the big boss of Arcadia might be like in a, in real life. Um, it's very satir- uh, satirical. It's very um, interesting. It's also got what, the last performance, I think, of the dearly departed um, Caroline Flack, which actually is quite b- uh, jarring to watch at the beginning. She yes, does because it, am I right in thinking that we sat in the screening to watch this and it literally opens with Caroline Flack and it was two days after she died? Am I right in thinking yeah, that? You are, because we which had was... a member of the studio come out and, and warn us just to make sure that we are prepared for that. And I think... Oh, it I wasn't paying attention at that point. Oh, clearly... Yeah, yeah. And I was there with you, Van, so you were definitely there. (laughs) Um, Okay, okay. I think I wanted this movie to be much more than it was. Um, It was okay. It just, it wasn't quite your 24-hour party people or your Alan Partridge. I'll give you that. Now, to be fair, I didn't want it to be more than it was because what I thought it was was absolutely terrific. But even I will say, it's not 24-hour party people. This is more like uh, 15, 15 and a half hour party people, if we're being really charitable. But I do think a lot of the success of this comes down to that magical pairing of Steve Coogan playing uh, it rhymes with Schmarschmoll and uh, and Michael Winterbottom, who I, I always find interesting. Even when his films are rubbish, they're at least interesting. Give it that. But also, an incredible cast in this. I mean, Isla yeah. Fisher, David Mitchell, just a really bizarre, eclectic mix in there. Tim Keys. If I'm getting Tim Keys in this just seems weird to me. But there's just this mishmash of strange performance in there. A lot of it taking place in the past and, and, and using you know basic unknowns. And I was really intrigued by how this was laid out, what it had to say about the industry. I think it gets a little bit preachy over the beginning and end credits. And that's not gone unnoticed by a lot of people. But I do think it's got a few, more than a few chuckles up its sleeve. Yeah, I think if you are a fan of Michael Winterbottom's work, you'll be happy with this. Um, For me, it just didn't quite land as much as I wanted it to. I think I was expecting too much from this. But anyway, that is Greed. That's available on DVD and Blu-ray. And then we move on to The Public, which you've mentioned an all-star cast in Greed. I mean, The Public has got, you know, so who's who? We've got Alec Baldwin, Taylor Schilling, Emilio Estevez, Jenna Malone, Christian Slater... Gabrielle Union. I mean, the list goes on. Jeffrey Wright. I'm a huge fan of Jeffrey Wright. Um, you know, this is this is an interesting one. This, I think, is a movie that I, I think a lot of people would have expected to be the new Spotlight. Well, the, the weird thing about the public is obviously a lot of that cast is down to the fact that it's been written and directed by Emilio Estevez, obviously, who's starring in it. And it has things to say about 
governmental attitudes to homelessness when it when it's presented with very easy fixes and chooses not to. Um, I don't want to go too far into it because you can talk for days on the public. I do think it's worth seeing. It's not an, an inherently popcorn friendly, you know, mainstream, you know, crowd pleaser. I do think as a film that you see on DVD or you catch on streaming or on you know Sky Cinema, or whatever, it's going to find its supporters there. Michael K. Williams uh, from The Wire, I think, is very very good in it as well. This is worth seeing. We never think about how much we miss Emilio, but it's it's good to see him back. And I do think this is a tremendous, uh, this is a testament to how tremendous a director and a writer Emilio can be. This is something I haven't seen in a long time since, I think, The Way back in 2010, I think. Well, it's a good selection. To be honest, there's something for everyone in this selection on DVDs and Blu-ray. Should we, should we move over to streaming and see what's on offer there? Well, we've got two smaller ones coming to uh, Amazon Prime, being added to the AP catalogue this next week. We've got The Truman Show and The Silence of the Lambs both coming to the platform on Tuesday the 30th. They're both classics. I'm, I'm quite a fan of uh, well, both of those, especially Truman Show. What about you? You're right in calling these classics. I mean, The Truman Show was just such an interesting concept. You know, the idea of... Look, this is before Big Brother actually came out. It was, uh, <laughs> it, it was kind of this weird, futuristic look at what would happen if our lives were actually followed hello I know but it's a great show fantastic performance from Jim Carrey as well and just one of those movies that I think is well well worth a watch if you haven't seen that so that's available on Amazon Prime from Tuesday now do you like a Chianti and uh <laughs> yeah, but this is the thing Sans of Lambs uh, one of the few horror movies and it is a horror movie I don't care how you slice it you can play it as a psychological thriller or you like look we all know it's a horror movie it's one of the few horror movies to ever win Best Picture and of course brilliant performance from Anthony Hopkins equally great performance from Jodie Foster Scott Glenn uh, it's just a wonderful roster in there and of course based on the, the classic Thomas Harris novel the less said about the follow up to this the better I mean Agreed. I read that I read Hannibal over the course of a flight to Kuwait in the uh, early 2000s, and no, not worth it at all, not worth the wait. But you know what? The film is what... This is an all-timer. If you've never seen it, what are you playing at? Get it seen. You can see it on Amazon Prime from Tuesday the 30th. But before then, something a little flashier. Do you like a bit of Eurovision, Bex? Oh, I, I love nothing more than gay Christmas. Yes, it is one of my favourite times of the year. It's um, it's one of those <laughs> one of those things that I think you just have to sit down, watch, absorb, and enjoy in its fabulousness. Well, this is the thing. I'm not a fan of the Eurovision Song Contest. It's absolutely nothing for me. But I'm not a fan of uh, figure skating either words. And I am a fan of Blades of Glory. So enter Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, which arrives on Netflix from today. We talked about it last week briefly, but for embargo reasons, we couldn't really get into it. Uh, this stars uh, Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams, Pierce Brosnan, Dan Stevens, Demi Lovato, not one but both Demetrios, uh, Jamie and Natasia. And it's effectively, like I say, Blades of Glory at Eurovision. That's a, a, a refresher as to sort of how this plays. All of Iceland thinks we are a joke. That's not true. And my father is ashamed of me. No, he's not. He looked me into the eyes and said, I am ashamed of you. Maybe he was drunk. He said, and you might think that I'm drunk, but I am dead sober. Idiot. Officially, Fire Saga will be representing Iceland at Eurovision this year. I hate them! Absolutely terrible. They're old, disgusting people. But we have no choice. So we're in? Yep. 
This marks the first time that Will Ferrell has co-written or even been involved in any writing on a movie since Anchorman 2, uh, seven years ago now. I'm very happy to say this is a lot better than, a lot better and a lot funnier than Anchorman 2. It's not quite up to the level of Blades of Glory. It's about a third as good in terms of the hit ratio for the gags. But it is loud, it's colourful, it's got Graham Norton sending up his own image. If you are a fan of Eurovision, this is going to be an easy sell for you anyway. But if you just want a sort of by-the-numbers flash in the pan, solidly fun and frenetic Will Ferrell comedy, you can do a lot worse than this. And I will say, Dan Stevens in, you know, in Lion Leopard Prince singing Lion of Love whilst writhing around a stage dolled up to look like late 80s George Michael with a Russian accent, that is almost worth the film on its own because I never thought I'd see anything like that anywhere else. No, I agree. And actually, the big thing about this for me is that I have seen it advertised quite a lot via Netflix and they're putting a lot behind it. So it's interesting to see that does it live up to the hype? It sounds like it probably does. And yes, if like me, you love a bit of Eurovision, you're going to love all the in-jokes in this as well. So yeah, a solid watch. Eurovision Song Contest available on Netflix from Friday, so that's today. Exciting. Um, that rounds us off for the week, doesn't it, Van? Yeah, seems that seems like a fun-filled week for us. I mean, ig- ignoring, you know, delves into Me Too and Rare Bookshops. And we, we've had our, our more sombre moments, but other than that, cinematic fun as ever. I can't recommend checking out On the Record highly enough, by the way. That documentary, absolutely tremendous. Just reduced me to emotional rubble. The, the story of what this woman went through is just harrowing, to say the least. But some 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 all-timers on TV this week as well. Uh, you know, yeah. we're going to rewatch So I Married an Axe Murder, deservedly so, just for uh, heed, move! Love that guy. <laughs> yeah, and there's so much that you can get as well on DVD and Blu-ray. So if you are into a great kind of retelling of the story of the H.G. Uh, Wells story of the Invisible Man, catch, catch that on DVD and Blu-ray from Monday. And then, of course, if you've just got Netflix on tap, then Eurovision Song Contest is launching today and is one for you to watch as well. So as ever, we'll be back with more movies, probably on the couch yet again next week but we'll have to wait and see on that one we'll keep you posted but for the moment I've been Bex Perfect I've been Van Cotter and this has been Off Screen <laughs>